In the 1920s, uh, an era took over the national landscape, and it was known as prohibition. Uh, The government outlawed the sale and trafficking of alcohol, and so a whole underground market erupted as people looked to take advantage of the situation. And one man who made literally a killing, metaphorically and literally, was a man named Al Capone. Al Capone ran the city of Chicago largely based upon trafficking alcohol. And he dominated the city of Chicago by paying off everyone he could to ensure that he was never caught. And eventually the government said they'd had enough, and so they appointed a man to go after Capone. His name was Elliot Ness. And Elliot collected a group of men, about 10 or 11 men, who were beyond being paid off. They were men of integrity. And they began to take down Capone's organization piece by piece by piece. And eventually their nickname became the Untouchables. A book was written about them, and later a movie was made telling their story. And in that movie, Elliot Ness is played by Kevin Costner. And one of his partners, an Irish-American cop from Chicago, is played by Sean Connery. And one thing you need to know about me is one of my greatest regrets in life is that I cannot do a decent Sean Connery impression. (laughs) I've tried... I've embarrassed myself, and I've failed, so I won't try today, but there's a scene from that film that has a phrase that speaks to the text we're going to look at this morning in Galatians, and since we're getting ready to go into at the movies, I wanted to show you this clip and talk about that line that's shared. Watch the screens. You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the shit. That's how you get Capone. Now, do you want to do that? Are you ready to do that? I'm making you a deal. Do you want this deal? I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. It's a coward. Do you know what a blood oath is, Mr. Ness? Yes. Good. Because you just took one. It's a great line. What are you prepared to do? See, all throughout this series we've been in the summer, Jesus plus nothing, we've been talking about what it is that we believe. We've been talking about the fact that as followers of Jesus, we believe that what Jesus has done is sufficient, and we don't need to add anything to it. We've been talking about how our temptation is constantly to fill this blank with things. Our flesh, our pride, our effort, that we need to help Jesus and add something to what he did. But a few weeks ago, we shifted from talking about just what do we believe 
to the question, what are we prepared to do in light of what we believe? Not as a way of adding to Jesus, but saying, if we believe this, that's going to lead to certain actions. It's going to lead to a certain lifestyle. That identity is going to produce certain activity. And so today, one of the things that we're going to do in looking at the words of Paul is we're going to say, what are we prepared to do if we believe this is true? It's not enough to say, this is what I believe, but what are you going to do? See, all of us have people in our lives, and even us ourselves have had moments where we said, this is what we believe, and then we've done something different. And when you and I are around people who say one thing and do another, we're faced with a choice, which one of those things is true. And my conviction, and I think it's yours, is that when people say one thing and do another, we trust what they do, not what they say. When it comes to your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, when they say one thing and do another and you're forced, forced to choose which one of those is true, all of us gravitate to what they do. We have cliches like talk is cheap to symbolize this. And what Paul is going to challenge us with today is it's not enough to say this is what you believe. Where is that going to play out in how you live? Not as a way of earning your salvation, but as a consequence, as evidence of it. And so this morning, as we finish up this series in the book of Galatians, there's a simple idea that I want you to take home with you today, and it's this. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. As Paul concludes this letter, he's going to drive home this point to his audience, the Galatian believers. So if you have a Bible, if you'd open it up or turn it on, hey, I bring my Bible everywhere I go. It's not always in the leather form, though. In Galatians chapter 6, we're going to finish up this book today with these 18 verses. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Galatians is between the books of 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. And Paul wrote this book. Actually, it's a letter to a group of churches in southern Greece known as Galatia. It's a group of cities and a group of churches, and he's wrapping up his letters. And if you've ever read Paul before, what you know is that he kind of gets to the end and he crams a bunch of subjects in. So if it seems a little bit haphazard and a little bit schizophrenic and he's kind of all over the place, this may be his last chance to speak to these people. And so he's saying everything. It's like when you're on the phone with your mom and she's like, okay, I have two minutes left. This person is sick. Go get the groceries. Do this. And she kind of lines that whole list. That's what Paul's doing. He's giving them his final words. And so today in these 18 verses, we're going to look at four final words from the Apostle Paul. Beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. The first word from Paul is this, that we are to share others' burdens, but we are to own our load. You are to share others' burdens, but you are to own your load. 
In the middle of this passage, verses 1 through 5, there's a, a verse that many of us know well in the ESV that I just read from. It says, bear one another's burdens. And in your translation, it might say, carry one another's burdens. It's one of the most well-known verses from the book of Galatians. And many of us read this and think that it means that we should be loving and compassionate to our friends and those we love and care about. But the context of this passage gives us the specific application of this idea. And in verse 1, he says, Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, which is a biblical word for sin, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. So the context of sharing another's burdens is when someone is caught in sin. And the word caught here in this language, caught in any transgression, it's this idea that like this insect, they didn't plan on getting caught. So there's sometimes in our lives where we consciously make sinful and bad decisions. We know what we're doing and we do it anyway. But there are other times when either due to ignorance or our inability to resist temptation, we end up in sin. Some of you are caught up in a pattern of sin in your life and you can't do anything to stop it. We use phrases like weakness or compulsion or addiction and you're getting just beaten down by that sin. No matter your best effort, this verse is describing your experience. And Paul says, what are we to do? What are we prepared to do? He says, we are to restore these people gently. We are to restore people who are caught up in sin by ignorance or inability. We are to restore them gently. We aren't to come in and judge them harshly. We aren't to look down on them with uh, a sense that we're better than them. Last week, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, and one of those is gentleness. We are to restore them gently. But tragically, often the position of the church to those who struggle in sin apart from their own ability is not gentleness. Many of us are like sin spies. And we're constantly watching to see if we can catch somebody in the act. We're watching to see how someone else can screw up. I have some friends who recently left a church, and one of the reasons they left is that someone in the church would go on Facebook and stalk people in the church, and if they posted anything inappropriate from their activities, they would screenshot it and email it to the pastor. And I said, get out of there as fast as you can. Because that's not restoring them gently. That's judgmentalism, that's toxic, that's cult-like, that's not like Christ. And so Paul says, in humility, with gentleness, restore that person who struggled. He doesn't say call them out. He doesn't say confront them. He doesn't say tweet about them. He says restore them. Begin and end all of your acts in relationship to them with the goal of bringing them back to where they once were. And here's the problem. For a lot of us, we want to point out the problem, but we don't want to sweat the solution. In the life of somebody else, we want to point out, hey, buddy, this is where you're screwing up. And we don't want to say, I see where you're screwing up and I will stick with you no matter how long it takes for you to overcome this. I appreciate friends who tell me the truth. I need it. But I love friends who have enough care for me to tell me the truth and walk with me while I overcome that weakness, even if it takes months or years. 
Anyone can point out a problem. Paul says, we're not pointing out problems. We're restoring people gently. We're working towards that solution. And he says, there are people who have great, incredible burdens. And he tells us what we are to do with them. And, and today, because we have kids in the room, I'm going to use some kids to illustrate this. So David and Luke, if you can come up here. You want to give them a round of applause, my assistants, this morning. Thank you, guys. Okay, so, uh, so Luke, you're going to have the hard time today. We're going to give you the heavy backpack. Okay? David, you got off easy. You're getting the light backpack today. Okay, so there's two backpacks here. Luke has the heavy one. David has the light one. If you look in verse 2, what does it say? It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is summary for what Jesus said was the most important law. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, David, if you figure out that Lucas has a really heavy load, it would be really loving for you to help him with it. So what I want you guys to do is open up your backpacks, and Luke, I want you to give some of your load to David, okay? And so what happens is, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to talk to you for a second while they're doing that. One of the things we tend to do is we're good at pointing out somebody else's problems. What Paul is saying is you bear that burden with them, and so you take some of it from them so that you can share that burden, share that struggle, and walk with them. So yes, now David has a little bit heavier load, but instead of Luke being weighed down and David kind of skipping along because he's got it easy, they're going to share this together. Do you think you guys could both carry that around for a while? Yeah? Okay, awesome. Want to give them a round of applause for helping us this morning? So what Paul is saying is he's saying, share that burden. So if you know someone who's caught up in a sin that they didn't plan on getting caught in, or they're unable to defeat it on their own, what Paul is saying is come alongside them. If you know somebody who's struggling with an addiction, don't just secretly, silently judge them. Come along them and say, hey, what would be helpful for you? Is there a time of day or a week when you're weakest? Okay, and I'm going to call you during that time. Or I'm going to hang out with you during that time. Or here, put me on speed dial and you can call me during that time. Or, hey, you know, there's this thing that tends to trip you up. What if I helped you find a way to get that out of your life? See, you can't bear their burden. You can't take it all on yourself. David didn't take all of Luke's load. But he helped shoulder it with him. And what's interesting is that if you read this in verse 5, you find something here that I never saw before. In verse 5, Paul says, for each will have to bear his own load. So Paul says, bear one another's burdens, but he also says, for each will have his own load. There's a tension to what he's saying. These words are different. Some of us have burdens because of sin that we need people to help us with, but we all have a load that God has put on us that he's called us to carry. And many times the problem in my life and in your life is that we're so frustrated that no one's helping us with our burdens. Some of you are in a terrible season of life and you're hacked off that no one is thinking about you and you're having to carry it all on your own. Because you're like, I can't carry this. I need help. 
And so what can happen in that frustration is that frustration can lead to resentment and you can begin resenting people because they're not helping you. And in your resentment, you forget that God called you to carry that own load. Does that make sense? There's a place for us to invite people to help us with the burden of sin, but there are things in life that are just part of being human. They're part of living in a broken world. They're part of following Jesus and they're our load. And we can't give that all to someone else and then skip through life. And so Paul is saying, be clear, share others' burdens, but own your load. Don't be entitled to think that you're just going to get out of life really easy. There are going to be difficult days. And while there are people around you who can help you, there are places where you're going to have to own your own load. You're going to have to bear your own load. Paul continues in verse 6. He says, Let the one who is taught by the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The second word from Paul is don't mock God or confuse yourself. Don't mock God or confuse yourself. Paul was involved in the beginning of this church, but he's left. He's long gone, and he's writing them a letter from a distance. There are other people who are leading this church. And so before he wraps things up, he says to the people, he says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Most commentators believe that Paul is encouraging the Galatian church to financially take care of and provide for those who are teaching them. This is the most awkward part of the sermon, as you might guess. But this is why we teach through the Bible through sections like this, is that I, I literally didn't plan this. It's just there, and I have to talk about it. And so I know some friends who've served in ministries and churches where the mentality of the people was, God, you keep him humble, and we'll keep him poor. And I'm grateful that I don't serve in one of those churches today, that you are profoundly generous that you provide for those who are here, not just financially, but with love and encouragement and care. And what Paul is saying is, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. It is going to take faithful generosity to provide for a thriving church. And one of the challenges of consumerism today is that when we distill church down to a Sunday morning experience, People think, I give some money and then I get an hour and a half a week. Or because I give money, I get to say what happens for that hour and a half per week. Or I can just come and consume and leave and not contribute. And what Paul is saying is you're in this thing together. Those who are being taught the word, the, the word in Greek is catechumen. It's the person who's being taught how to follow Jesus. Those of you who are learning how to follow Jesus, share with those who are teaching you and don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Kids, I want you to pay attention for a second. This section is for you. 
Paul is talking about the fact that if you sow certain seeds in the ground, certain trees will come up. And so I have a little activity for us here. In the next section, I'm going to show you some seeds, and I want you to tell me what kind of plant comes from those seeds, okay? So what kind of plant will come from these seeds? What kind of tree? You might have a guess? Okay, apple. Okay, we're one for one there. Good job. Okay, how about these seeds? Anybody got any ideas? I'm hearing some adults call out. This is not your turn. This is for the children. Um, but, but it is an orange tree. Let's go to a third set of seeds. Anybody got any ideas about these? Just call it out. Watermelon? Close. It's a pear tree. Now, this is the easiest one. If you don't get this, we're going to have to send you back to first grade this week, you know? Pomegranates. Pomegranates. And just so you know, one of my favorite things in the world is guacamole with pomegranate seeds. If you haven't tried it, it will change your life. (laughs) Before I get any hungrier, I'm going to continue. What Paul is saying in this text is he is saying you reap what you sow. He's saying if you plant something, you're going to reap in kind. And he says here that if you sow to your flesh, now your flesh is your own natural abilities, your sinfulness, your humanness, you're going to reap to that. If you do things in your own effort, then you're going to accomplish things in light with your own effort. If you want to accomplish the things of God, you can't sow in the flesh. If you want to do the things that God planned for you, you can't just do it in your own power and might. You have to sow in the Spirit. And this is the place in this book, as I've been working through this book for a couple months now, that God has most used this to convict me. Because I will tell you, the greatest temptation for American pastors today is to try to sow in their flesh and reap in the Spirit. To try to do things in our own effort and expect God to put some magic fairy dust on it and then bring spiritual fruit. And God has reminded me, Scott, you have to do this in the Spirit. You have to sow in the Spirit if you want to reap in the Spirit. I want to give you guys an illustration again, and I'm using kids because I know this is a longer time than kids ever pay attention. And so I'm going to ask my friend to come up right here. This is Kaylee, and she's going to help me with this illustration here this morning. Thank you, Tyler. Everybody's working hard today to help me. So I'm going to put these. These are sunflower seeds. They may look like David's dill pickle sunflower seeds, but please don't eat them right now. And these are sunflowers, and we're going to pretend that they're real. Again, we're using our imagination this morning, folks. So these are sunflower seeds, Kaylee, and if you put those in the ground after you ate outside and tasted the lovely dill seasoning, you would get something like this, okay? Now, if you wanted to have a banana tree in your backyard— would you plant those seeds? No. Okay. If you wanted to have a pineapple tree, would you have those seeds? No. If you wanted to have a grape bush, would you plant those seeds? No. It's only sunflower seeds that lead to sunflowers, right? Yeah. Awesome. And what grade are you going into next week? Eighth. Eighth grade. Awesome. Thank you for your help today. Okay, you can go to Now, some of you go, Scott, duh, sunflowers come from sunflower seeds. But how many of us are planting one thing in our lives and expecting God to bring a a reaping of something else? How many of us want to have a thriving relationship with God, 
based upon 60 minutes every Sunday? How many of us want to have a thriving relationship with our kids and yet most of our time with them, we're all watching TV together or they're watching the back of our iPhone? How many of us want to have a thriving relationship with our spouse and yet every weekend we get, we go and hunt with our buddies instead of taking a weekend to spend with our spouse? How many of us want to be able to be used by God and use our resources for him, but we continue to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't like? See, it's a simple idea, but it is profoundly deep and challenging. And some of us need to step back and go, I have been reaping exactly what I sowed, and so if I want to reap something different, I need to sow something different. Some of you, that isn't your challenge. Your temptation is that you're tempted to give up. Some of you have been sowing the right things, and you're waiting on the harvest to come. You've been faithfully loving and caring for someone and waiting for them to get their act together, and they haven't yet. Some of you have been doing all you can to manage your finances, but one thing after another happens and you keep experiencing setbacks. You created an emergency fund and then the muffler on the car broke. You reinvested in the emergency fund and the water heater broke and you just can't seem to get ahead. And what Paul says here is he says, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul's using a visual metaphor here that we struggle to understand because we don't live in this world. What he was saying, he says, let us not grow weary. The the, the word for growing weary is that in this day, men wore long flowing tunics. They didn't wear Levi's out in the field. They wore tunics. And while you were working in the field to keep your tunic out of the field, you would gird your tunic with a belt. And while your tunic was girded, you could continue working. But when you got done working, when you were tired, you would undo your belt. Kind of like my grandpa did growing up on Thanksgiving when he was done eating. (laughs) I'm done. And some of you are tempted to unbuckle because you're exhausted. And what that means is that when you give up, you will miss out on the harvest. And Paul is saying, I know what it's like to be weary. But if you do not give up in due season, you will reap a harvest. So continue to do good. And it's a reminder for us that following this Jesus is not easy, it's difficult, and it will take everything we have. And I want to remind you of a quote I shared the first week from Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard said, Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. We can teach and live Jesus plus nothing if we avoid thinking that we earn our salvation. But following this Jesus and the things that we do will require all of the effort we have. It will be the most difficult thing we do. And at times we'll be tempted to give up. And Paul says, don't. And then he wraps up this section beginning in verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which we have been crucified by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The final word from Paul is that we are to boast in Christ alone. We are to boast in Christ alone. He says there's a lot of things that you could boast for in this world. There's lots of achievements you could have, but I want you to boast in Christ alone. And if you'll note in verse 11, Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's believed that Paul dictated the book of Galatians up to this point. And then he grabbed the pen, and this last section I read, he wrote himself. And in the same way, you would know your close friend's handwriting, they knew his. It says, so pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. Paul is reiterating the same thing we've been talking about for nine weeks, that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That if you add anything to the work of Jesus and boast in anything in addition to the work of Jesus, you nullify the whole thing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The reason that we're here is not that we are better people than people who are not here. The truth is we are just as broken. And the only thing we have to boast in is what Jesus has done for us. And the challenge is in this day, there were people who were boasting that they were very good rule followers. They were very good religious people. Some of them who were Jewish by birth were boasting that they had been circumcised, which throughout the Bible was a sign that those people were set apart as the people of God. And Paul is saying, even those who are circumcised do not actually keep the law. They don't keep the whole law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Many of us think that we're good people, not because of who we are, but because of how we compare to someone else. We go, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as Bin Laden. You know, I'm not as bad as this person over there that I read about on TMZ. I'm better than the Kardashians. I'm a pretty good person, you know? And what Paul is saying is far be it from me to boast in anything that I do. And Paul had reason to boast. He kept all of the law. And he says, the only thing I have to boast in is the cross of Christ. Did Paul die on the cross? No. Jesus died on the cross for Paul as a sign of what Paul couldn't do for himself. So Paul was boasting in his own inadequacy, in his own weakness. Paul saying, if you're going to boast, boast in what you can't do that Jesus did for you, as opposed to what you could do for yourself that really isn't that big of a deal. And it's a reminder for us Because we live in a world where we love to boast. I mean, Pinterest is a whole social media network based upon boasting. This is what I did for my family. This is what I did for my kid's birthday party. This is what I did for our house. 
Instagram can be a giant thing of boasting. Look at our family vacation. Look at our new house. Look at our hike. And it doesn't have to be that, but if our heart is, I want to look better than everyone else I've seen on there, and I want them to feel a little bit like they're missing out compared to me, we've taken something and we've made it what it not should be. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And that's why Paul is saying, if you're going to boast, boast in what Christ has done for you and in who you are now because of him. He's saying it's not about you and what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And so boast in that. He says it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. We've moved on from that. What matters now is you're a new creation. We read this verse every time we baptize people because it's a reminder of what we believe. Paul says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. For though we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The last thing I want to share, do I need to switch mics? Am I okay? We'll see. The last thing I want to share comes from verse 18. Paul ends this with a prayer. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The reason he does this is that you read this as one of six books in an anthology we called the Bible. They listen to this as a letter. Someone stood on a stage like this and they read the letter to the people and they heard it for the first time all the way through. And they got to the end and the person reading it said, Amen. And likely the crowd said back, Amen. Now, most of us have been deceived into thinking that amen is the word that goes at the end of our prayers to signal we're done. My kids have this problem. Every night they pray, you know, dear Jesus, blah, 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 amen, the end. Literally, every time they say amen, the end. Some Sunday I'm going to be praying up here and say amen, the end. And if you wonder, that's why. But amen does not mean the end. Literally, it means so be it. And so if you're ever in here and somebody says amen, it's not because they want me to get done faster. It's because they agree. And I just got back from Zambia and I have to tell you that I preached better there. You want to know why? It's because they say amen. It's because they talk back to me and I know they're not asleep. I watch some of you guys and I go, are they asleep? Are they fighting with their wife? Did they have a bad dinner last night? Are they ready to go watch the Cardinals play? What's going on? Amen. Thank you. And so I'm just saying, and some of you may not like this, but most of us in this room are white, and so what it means is that we're quiet in church. And everybody there was not white, and they told me when I was doing good, and so you have my blanket permission from now on, if I'm doing good, to tell me. If I'm not doing good, don't tell me, you know, just fall asleep. But if I'm doing good, I'm okay to know, because I want you to know that I know that we're going to do this together. And so when they got done with this letter and Paul had called them to not make it about them, but make it about Jesus, he said, amen. And if they said, so be it, they were in and they were going to do it together. So here's, before we're done, I have a couple next steps for you to think about as this series ends. The first one is, and there's a place on the back of your hand, I have to write these down. 
The first one is I want to challenge you to identify where you're most tempted to add to Jesus. This blank over here that is starting to fall apart because it's been a long summer, what are you most tempted to put in this blank? What are you most tempted to add to Jesus? Is it perfect church attendance? Is it tithing? Is it daily Bible reading? Is it prayer? Is it the family you came out of? Is it your own discipline? Identify what you're most tempted to add to Jesus. That's next step one. Next step two is share your weakness with others for the sake of accountability. If you really want to conquer that thing, then ask someone to share that burden with you and to help you make progress in overcoming it. Many of us will get accountability for our physical health, for our financial health, but we never get it for our spiritual health. So invite someone to hold you accountable. Third, I want you to, before you forget we had this series today or this week, record your biggest lessons from this series. What did God teach you? It's been scientifically proven that we write down things and it increases our memory. So I'm not saying type it. I'm saying literally with a pencil, find one in your house, sharpen it, and write down what you learned so that when you need it, God can bring it to mind. Four, I want to challenge you to give thanks for grace on a daily basis. The reason we have these big signs up is I hope they're burning your minds. I hope you every day thank God, you know what, Jesus, I didn't deserve this. I'm a broken person on my own. I've seen the things that I naturally reap from what I sow, and I thank you that your grace is bigger than that, and you've forgiven me, and you've given me a new chance. See, here's what I've learned. Entitlement begins, entitlement ends where gratitude begins. So if you want to fight entitlement, you have to practice gratitude on a daily basis. Because entitlement isn't a millennial problem, it's a human problem. And all of us fight it. So give thanks for grace on a daily basis. And then finally, tell someone you know about the good news. This series we've been in is not just for us. And that's why in two weeks we're starting at the movies. Because it's a reminder that this good news we've received is not just for us to hold on to. It's for us to share. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this good news. We thank you for the way that it has transformed us. We pray for the places where we need it, the things that are the storms we walked in carrying. And we thank you that you have paid every price that's needed to be paid so that we can experience all of the life you have for us. May we constantly be reminded that we don't need to add anything to what you've done. We just need to celebrate it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.